Hey, all you party people. Hey, guys. <laughs> I'm Marissa. And I'm Liza. And this is Little Sleep Much Reading Podcast. Woo! And finally, from so little sleeping and so much reading, his brain dried up and he went completely out of his mind. Hey guys, so everyone has to clap their hands and give Liza a round of applause for a winning horror contest. Eliza, please tell us a little bit about it. Oh, thank you. Marissa is referring to, I won a short fiction prize for one of my short stories. Um, which is really exciting and I'm very, very grateful. And I'm sure um, when it is out in its printing and it's also potentially going to be in a podcast that we could post that. But the funniest thing is, it's my story, a story for my thesis that is horror and it takes place in Maine. So there you go. well, it's up to you. It's based on Massachusetts and Maine because I spent time in both places as a youth um, and they're both inside of me, the, both those places. But the, the dialect that the characters are using is a Mainer's dialect. Um, so that's a little bit funny that that happened the same week we were doing Mr. King. It's also interesting that it's uh, lobster trap. Yeah, lobster trap. Right, like it's could find space anyways super cool and we're all happy for liza and we all have to clap for her yay Yay. thank you so today's theme is mr stephen king yes because it's his birthday this week uh he's born september 21st so tuesday this past tuesday was mr king's birthday Happy birthday. Happy birthday, Stephen. Stephen, the king of scary things. Our hero. <laughs> well, I wouldn't <laughs> go that far. I would not. Um, I want to tell you the thing that I was going to tell you that I don't think I've told you before. Okay. Okay. So I don't think I told you this before. And I actually don't know if I remember to tell anybody this before. But my parents had lunch with Stephen King himself back in the day they had like a sit-down lunch yes I don't know the full details of the scenario it was something to do with Stephen was supporting either some cause or some political candidate and for some reason it was my parents job to go pick him up like at like the airport or something and then go to this lunch And obviously my parents are going to tell the story a lot better, but the only thing that sticks in my mind is my mom, like whenever she like relays the tale, she's like, yeah, and we were sitting with him at lunch and I remember thinking that he looked like a werewolf. (laughs) He does look like a werewolf. And she's not wrong. No, not, Um, not at all. She's yeah, absolutely correct. Nothing really about his personality, nothing about what the circumstances were, just that 
my parents had lunch with Stephen King and when they were like very, pretty young, like, I don't know, 20s maybe. And he looked like werewolf. Honestly, that's one of the best stories I've ever heard. Yeah. That's amazing. I love it. I had like forgotten it, but then I remember it every time I think of Stephen. I'm like, oh, there he is. You have to talk to your parents and find out what he ate. I want to know if he I ate know. anything. <gasps> I bet he got like a medium. I got, I bet he got like a rare steak and like potatoes. <laughs> I mean, I can see it. Yeah. That, that's just what I wanted to say to set the scene. That's amazing. Before we got into the life of Stephen King, I needed you to know that. I'm glad that you waited until we were recording. Yeah. That was a good way to find out. <laughs> oh, you know what I read? What? One of his uh, super spooky houses in Maine. They're turning it into like a museum and a writer's retreat. Um, I want to go. I also want to go. Can we find out how to go? Yeah, we're going. I mean, that was kind of like made for us just a little bit. I totally think it was. Um. Also, Maine is so spooky. And do you remember that one time our thesis professor was like, are you allowed to write stuff that takes place in Maine? And I was like, yeah. And I did. <laughs> Stephen King owns Maine. Well, he might. I mean, do you know how many places this man has lived? He's lived all over the place. And he writes all over the place. He doesn't own New England. I know. That's what's weird, though, because I honestly did think he owned New England like a little bit. Like being somebody from New England, I thought. Well, first of all, all the stuff I was ever going to write was probably going to take place in New England because it has some kind of hold on anybody who's from there. But I never knew that he used to write in Colorado and Oregon and stuff until like a few years ago. I thought it was Maine strictly. And I think a lot of people think that. Well, we're here to tell you. No, that's not my book does not take place in Maine. (laughs) Neither does mine. Yeah. So my book is The Dark Tower, but I only read book one, The Gunslinger which takes place in another universe or world. And my book is Misery, which takes place in Colorado area. So let's talk a little bit about him. So his first professional story sale was in 1967. Uh, So he was 20. Uh, And it was his short story, The Glass Floor. Never read it, have you? No, I have not. Um, he worked as a high school English teacher for a while, which is so friggin' cool. Can you imagine being like, oh, yeah, like Stephen King was my English teacher? That's so crazy. I did not know that. Imagine having to wake up at like 8 a.m. every day <laughs> and going to school and be taught by Stephen King. Literally, my school days, too, used to start at 725 in the morning. And I'm like, just imagining class, English class with the spookiest man in America at 725 in the morning. No, not this. No, thanks. So, yeah, he was doing the damn thing. He was working uh, as a high school English teacher living with lovely Tabitha. Pretty sure she got pregnant the year that they graduated from college Mm, okay so he needed the money um in 1974 which is not that much later he was what 27 1974 27 years old this man writes carrie and carrie is published 
That's insane. That's actual king, like king level. I don't think I knew that he, I knew that he must've been kind of young because he's not super old now at all. Even the first Carrie movie yeah. is quite old. So it was like he wrote it, he published it, and then the movie couldn't have come out that many years later. It came out in 76. So it was pretty much an, an instant hit, if you think about it. Um, Honestly, legend material. Pretty damn amazing. Carrie came out in 74. Then in 75, he posted Salem's Lot. He posted, he published Salem's Lot, <laughs> which I don't think, I mean, it's definitely famous, but it's not as close to some of his other ones. Then he posted Rage as uh, Richard Bachman in 76. Then The Shining came out in 77. Uh, and then The Stand came out in 78. Meanwhile, he's posting he's why do I keep saying posting he's publishing short stories and story collections anthologies all that while he's writing all this pretty insane um I should also mention that publishing Carrie in 74 is what allowed him to be a full-time writer we're both 22 can you imagine two years ago publishing your first book and being able to not work and just write full-time. That's insane. And it's not like he's just living for himself. He has a wife and a baby on the way. And he, he proceeds to have three kids in total. So, I mean, this man has to write. And I'm pretty sure, I mean, I didn't really look up much about Tabitha's life during the time, but she's also a writer. So I'm assuming she was also writing at this time. Yeah, that's that's insane. I should also say he developed a drinking problem in 1970 while he was in college. And with the start of all his movies happening and he started going to Hollywood parties and everything, that's when he was addicted to coke. And again, you have to think his first movie was in 76. Mm -hmm. So he's a young guy and he pretty much had a really bad alcohol and drugs problem. Uh, Tabitha staged an intervention for him where she dumped out his garbage can on the floor in front of all his friends and family. And he says there were beer cans, cigarette butts, Coke in gram bottles and in plastic baggies. Coke spoons caked with snot and blood, Valium, Xanax, bottles of Robitussin cough syrup, NyQuil, and even mouthwash. <gasps> God. So he had a real problem. Yeah. And the intervention happened in 87. Okay. Oh, damn. Okay. Yeah. So if he started drinking in the 70s and then he was introduced to at least Coke in 76... He had a drug problem for quite a while. Yeah. Um, Damn. A lot of his really loved works came out during those times. Yeah. But Stephen King says that the idea that writers need 
other sub- substances to fuel their creativity is a huge myth. Mm-hmm. Um, and he, the last book he wrote, effed up, if you will, was Tommy Knockers. And he says it's horrible and he hates it. <laughs> and his first novel that he wrote after being sober was in 1991, and it was Needful Things. I don't know. I would say maybe he's right. You know, maybe uh, writers don't need substance. I would say my freshman year of college, I got drunk for like the second time ever in my dorm room. And I was like, I'm going to write something because that's what writers do. Stop. (laughs) And so I wrote a poem because I was in a poetry. I took only poetry at the time because we had to, I think. And the next morning I woke up and I remembered it like halfway through the day, opened my notebook, could not read what it said. <laughs> no. Oh my God. <laughs> don't know what I was writing. Don't know what it was supposed to mean. Uh, all, all I know is that I tried to do it and <laughs> don't do it. It's not fun. So I'm, I'm with Stephen King. He's right. <laughs> um, yeah. Uh, so I'm going to propose a little question. Mm-hmm. for uh us the audience god perhaps why do we think stephen king is so popular mm-hmm. that's an excellent question because i think stephen king must be the most well-known contemporary american author i can't think of anybody who is a household name in the same way that he is contemporary wise. And it's interesting because horror is a very polarizing genre. I think you love horror or you won't go near it. I don't really think there's anybody who just like will read horror and doesn't really care either way. And when you ask people, I feel like every single person knows who Stephen King is and maybe they've read like one of his books. And then there's definitely diehard fans. I don't think there's really anybody who hates him either. And I don't think there's anybody who's just like, yeah, Stephen's fine. You know, Stephen King, you know who he is. And if you've read his books, you probably really like him. Right. I would assume so. Yeah. I'm trying to figure out a good answer to that question. And I'll pass it over to you. But the first thing that pops into my head was, I think, I mean, let's not get too ahead of ourselves because it is one of the thickest books I've ever seen in my life. And I've never picked it up because of that. It is like lame Miz length. And for what? But all that being said, I think that his books are very accessible. I think that he's not gatekeeping anything. I don't think he's using language that is trying to keep people from reading his books. And that's something I really appreciate. And I always appreciate in writers because every book is not going to be for everybody. But I do think that for the most part, I appreciate writers who write books that anybody could read if they wanted to. And I think that people who don't air quotes like to read like Stephen King. 
And so I think that must have something to do with it, like the manner, the style which he writes and how he makes things accessible to lots of different people. And 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 perhaps even that his books are so like cinematic, it feels more accessible to people. But does Stephen King feel accessible because he's so wildly popular that people are like, oh, yeah, if I'm going to read a book, I'll read Stephen King. I don't know. So that's kind of my initial thoughts from that really excellent question. We both approach this question in such different ways. It's so interesting. I was talking to my uncle about a lot of the problems that I have with Stephen King, which don't get me wrong. I love him and I have so much respect for him. But, you know, there's certain things he does as a writer that just aren't always my cup of reading tea. And I mean, you could say the same thing about lots of writers for many different reasons. So when I was talking about him with my uncle, he said to me, I like Stephen King as a storyteller, but not a writer. I understood what he meant because I keep reading Stephen King, even though I don't always vibe with his writing. And what that means to me is it boils down to his stories. The stories that he's telling are something that keep people coming back and coming back and coming back. Why? Well, I think that he writes horror in a reality way. And what I mean by that is thinking of Pet Cemetery. that book isn't just about bringing your undead child back to life and they're suddenly evil. It, it actually boils down to grief and child loss. Thinking of Carrie, his first book, it's not about this telekinetic, powerful girl who murders her class. It's about an abusive mother and social abuse and alienation and what bullying could do to someone. The Shining isn't about living in a haunted hotel. It's about addiction and what it can do to your family. So I, I think that people find his stories frightening because they're about reality in a disguised way. And I personally think that that's what horror should be and that's what horror should be doing. So that's why I think people love him so much. I love that analysis, everything about it. And especially with you saying like, he writes about horror that is real, but something that also just like is sticking with me is like the first thing you said is that I like him as a storyteller, but not necessarily as a writer. Because I think that is so important when, when talking about books is someone can be an amazing storyteller like Stephen King and the writing is like not super um, important to what, to what's happening. Um, and I kind of want to get into that too a little bit when I talk about misery, because I do have like a thought that kind of goes along with that. But there, then, then there's people who are really good writers and their stories telling is not good. And I've come across that. And it's frustrating at times. But then again, sometimes you'll read it and be like, I don't even care that there's no plot. I don't care that I, there's no story because this writing is so incredible. That doesn't matter. There's some people who have both. There's mm-hmm. some people who have one or the other. And all of those people can thrive. I guess it's people who have neither that cannot thrive. But I also think, that this kind of ties back to why he's so popular is that I think generally speaking, people care more about the stories and how the stories make them feel 
then they care about how the writing and the writing makes them feel. That's very, that's a very general statement because that's not going to be everybody at all. And I don't even think that's me. Like personally, like I think I like stuff for the stories and I think I also like stuff for writing even at different times. It doesn't need to actually both be happening at once. But I think as a general statement, people want to be told good stories. And Stephen King does that magnificently. Mm-hmm. So there you go. Uh, and I, I mean, even looking at his books or not even his books, just knowing a basic plot, knowing some of the stories, whether you've read the back of a book in a convenience store one day or saw a commercial on TV or actually watched one of his movies or actually read one of his books, whatever it is, you can see a lot of repeating tools and themes that he uses, Mm -hmm. which is interesting to think about as a writer. And it makes me even reflect on my own stuff, like how many, I don't know, little themes have I had recurring? I mean, for just a small example, while reading The Gunslinger, I was thinking a lot about confined spaces Mm -hmm. and this is something that I would love more insight on so if anyone listening to this can think of another example other than the ones I'm going to mention or if you want to add something about the ones I'm going to mention I would love to hear it because this is super interesting to me um so think about confined spaces in his books if you have read the stand or seen the old version or I guess it's kind of in the new version, eh. but there's the scene with the Lincoln Tunnel, which in my opinion is one of the scariest things I've ever read in my entire life. Um, there's also the confined space of the sewers in it. Um, in The Gunslinger, there's a part where they're in a cave in a mountain and they're walking on this dark railway trail um, and there's no sides or anything. Uh, there's also, this is a really tiny one, but one of my favorite parts in The Shining is when Danny is playing in the play tunnels or whatever. And he knows that like, there's another little boy with him kind of, or another being with him. And he's in this, he has to crawl like through the play tunnel. So friggin' just scary. Um, So if you guys can think of any other confined spaces, I would love to hear about it. Do you ever write about your biggest fear as a horror writer? I actually don't know what my biggest fear is. So I'm sure that I do and not even realize that I'm doing it. Yeah, that's an excellent statement. Um, Because I think the fact that it comes up so much for him leads me to believe that that's something that scares him, which I think is really interesting because it's cool as a horror writer to write about what scares you. Right. I do write a lot about body horror. Yes. And (laughs) I will say I'm very afraid of things happening in my body that I'm unaware of. And I don't mean like, oh, sickness I'm gonna die I mean like literally like I don't friggin know what if (laughs) what if uh, like a bug just put eggs in my body one day and they hatched and there are just bugs crawling around inside of me and they can swim stop it Marissa like I just think crazy things are like having a baby 
Yeah. I never want to be pregnant because I don't know what the, I don't know what's growing in me. What's it doing in there? <laughs> what's it doing in there? And also, is it really a baby? Right. <gasps> Not Rosemary's baby. Right. What if it's something else? Yeah. What if it's like, I said this to my cousin she just recently had a baby. And when she was pregnant, I was like, aren't you scared that it's not a baby? And she was <laughs> like, what do you mean? And I was like, what if you had an ultrasound and had a picture of it and it was a dog? What would you do? And she was like, oh, do not say that to me. Marissa, <laughs> that made my skin crawl because also people who are listening to this podcast who also know Marissa. Marissa has a story where like a dog comes out of a person and it literally made me scream the first time I read it. I was like, God, no. (laughs) Ew. (laughs) I love it. So I love it. Perhaps that is my biggest fear. I'm, I'm genuinely not sure. Yeah. But yeah. I mean, Stephen King has an extreme amount of books and short stories. We could sit here and analyze his writing all day and talk about all the different tropes he uses, um, anti-heroes, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. We could talk about feminine versus misogyny in his book. Yeah. Books. Um, These would all be really interesting things to talk about. So maybe we'll do another episode. Obviously, this, again, he has so many books. This will not be our... um, only this will not be our only episode on Mr. King. No, it can't um, be. And I don't know. Maybe maybe we'll do a little bonus episode talking about some feminism. I would love that. Maybe, maybe not, but maybe. So let's get into our books. Let's hear it. So I was first introduced to Stephen King at a very young age. He was my grandmother's favorite author and I actually started out with his movies I remember being super super small I'm I'm the youngest of my generation of cousins so as you can imagine I was very corrupted at a at a small age so I remember being four or five and sitting under the pool table in the basement with my older cousins and my uncle who were probably like anywhere from I don't know seven to 12 at the time and we were just watching it just casually that was how it started for me that was how I uh, got into Stephen King and I wanted to watch all his movies me and my cousins were always obsessed with The Stand I saw The Shining with my mom really really young Pretty much if he had a movie out when I was a child, I saw it at a horror age. Um, to me, it wasn't Stanley Kubrick's The Shining. It was Stephen King's The Shining. Stephen King has always been a name to me. And then when I got older and I started reading his books, I will say I have my own criticisms of his text. To me, it needs to be edited a lot. There's a lot of violence towards women and things that make me uncomfy that again, we could talk about in a feminism episode. But interestingly enough, most of the my problems with King's writing was fairly non-existent or could be looked over in The Gunslinger. Um, so let's get into that a little bit. The Gunslinger was published in 1982, but it was written over a 12-year period. 
spring semester of King's senior year in, in college, he worked at the University of Maine's library with his future wife, Tabitha. One day, mysteriously, three reams of very cheap paper appeared. One was blue, one was yellow, and one was green. Tabitha took the blue one. The guy who Tabitha was dating at the time took the yellow one. He also became a famous writer. And King took the green one on which he started writing The Gunslinger. And again, it wasn't published until 82 which is pretty insane. So I'm going to get into a little, little review. So readability and interest, I said seven to eight. I was fairly interested in this. I had quite a few people recommend it to me and tell me how good it was. As I said before, King's writing can make me space out and get lost. But it, I didn't feel that with The Gunslinger. Instead, I read it pretty steadily. I wouldn't say that I consumed it as I would like a binge book, but I was, I was pretty, I was reading pretty steadily. Um, For form and stylization, I gave it a seven. I did find some really strange typos. For instance, uh, the chapter, if you want to call it a chapter, the way station on page 71, there was this really strange part, which I sent to Liza where He mentioned that his dad used to sing to him. And then suddenly in the same paragraph, he uses the pronoun she and he switches it so that his mom was the one singing to him. And it made me mad that these that these mistakes weren't caught. I truthfully don't know if I'm mad at King Because I don't want to say it's laziness because he he's a writer and all writers make mistakes. We're human. But you're telling me this got past his editors and everyone at the publishing house and no one saw this because it was pretty obvious. And then I did kind of question because of the nature of the book. I questioned if this typo was actually a mode of plot. At the time, the gunslinger, who is chasing the man in black, and that's the whole concept of the book. So the gunslinger has walked through the desert, and he's delirious, he's dehydrated. So I was maybe like, oh, was he just out of it and just was thinking wrong? But I I highly doubt that it's that. I'm going to have more on that in a minute. I'm also going to say King's style of writing isn't always my favorite, as I've said, But this book made it easy to look past the things that I didn't like and chalk them up to other things, which again, I can touch on that in a minute. For Shelf Worthy, I said eight. I think this is a book that you have to read and move on through the whole series and then reread this one, if that makes sense. It feels like such a beginning book that it is probably most appreciated after a great amount is consumed it's probably most appreciated after you've finished the whole dark tower series for plot i did 78 78 for plot i did 728 to piggyback off of what i was kind of just saying while this is a single story it feels more like a long beginning to me i can tell how crucial this one story this one book is to the whole without ever having read any of the others 
I can't think of very much that I felt was unnecessary in terms of this book. There was no long-winded descriptions or added backstory that shot beyond the plot like King does with a lot of his other books. Um, Everything felt very necessary. Thinking back on plot points and backstory, I, I really do just realize that the whole book is just a beginning. It's just a setup for the next seven. I think that if you took all the Dark Tower books and put them into one huge book, the Gunslinger would be the perfect beginning to the whole plot. And it is about, I don't know, 150, 200 pages long, maybe. Yeah, I think it's like 230, 230 pages long. And I know you're like, that is an insane beginning. But it's not in context of a story. Um, if that makes sense. If you're, if you have this whole entire world planned, which King does mention that um, the ideas that he had for the Dark Tower would take him years and years and years and years. He'd probably be dead before he finished it. And it would be an insane amount of pages. So it's not such a bad thing to think that this story is just a beginning and perhaps a lot of King's other books would benefit from being split up in the same way. So again, that before I mentioned, I can sort of overlook some of the things in King's style, such as all of the sex talk, um, the way he describes women, the way he's constantly mentioning, and I'm, I'm air quoting right now, I'm, I'm doing air bunnies, privates. He uses that word so much. Um, but I think I can overlook all these things because perhaps he's simply establishing character. To this point, Stephen King has a really amazing author's note at the end of The Gunslinger, and he talks about how over this 12 year this 12 year period the gunslinger has always came back to him i'm not talking about the book i'm talking specifically about the character the character has always been with him while he was writing or after he finished several of his stories he he jumped right back into the gunslinger um it was just something that was always twirling around his head and a character that was always with him so perhaps the gunslinger has simply just grown to be a part of him and he a part of the gunslinger I know as myself, I've done that with my own characters sometimes. I have characters that are probably going to be stuck in my head for the rest of my life and will never leave me no matter how much of their story that I write, just because, I don't know, it's just, it's the way it is. So again, I can overlook these things because I think that it's the gunslinger. I do not think that it's Stephen King being a pig. I think it's just the character of the gunslinger. Um, kind of going into that for characterization, I did an eight to nine. I don't like some of the characters, but I'm still wondering about them and their past and their present and their future. And since I'm only really aware of the gunslinger being the rather important character in the book, I'm rating it according to him specifically. And I feel like, although he's not my favorite character I've ever read, and although I wouldn't want to be his friend. 
I still think that he's a good character and I am looking forward to continuing the books at some point and going back on another strange journey through many different deserts with him. So with all that being said, King's author's note is beautiful and I got to the end of the book and I read this author this author's note which is titled I believe the afterwards and I was like this is amazing I just thought it was so good so of course as a responsible reader I looked up more about the gunslinger and I found out something that made me so angry so let's talk about it so in 2003 after he wrote all but three of the Dark Tower books, question mark, I could be wrong on that. Um, he decided to republish The Gunslinger because, one, he felt that the first time he wrote it, it was too dry. And for two, he realized that there were a ton of inconsistencies with the other seven plus books. And uh, he wanted to correct them. So he completely rewrote this first book. Again, I read an old version from a garage sale that was published in the late 80s, early 90s, I believe. There is a website that compares both versions and lists out all of the corrections that King made on each page in each chapter, which involves some major events changing for instance in the beginning of the book the gunslinger becomes involved with a woman and he stays with her for i'm believing about a week maybe longer and at the end the town which is possessed question mark on that uh decides to attack the gunslinger and runs at him one of the townspeople they use that lady as a human shield and completely unmercifully the gunslinger just shoots her between the eyes and him without even really like giving it a second thought in the moment of course later he's like oh poor alice i killed alice i'm always gonna think of alice but at the time he just does it and it's nothing which makes sense for the gunslinger's character because he is chasing the man in black and that is all he is doing that is his main goal in life and it has always been his main goal in life to catch the man in black well in this new version i guess he wanted to make the gunslinger more likable or something so in this part when the town is uh, going crazy or whatever she runs at him and she's been made insane and she's begging him to kill her so he does little things like that are interesting um it's, it's a really interesting change that King would make because it goes against things that happen later in the first book and it really makes someone question the gunslinger's character. Um, he also corrected, I believe the plot is laid out differently, told differently, things like that. Super interesting, made me super mad. Um, the privilege that you must have to be able to completely revise your book in 2003 because of inconsistencies and re-release it and people eat it up still. 
can anyone else in the world, if they posted a book, if they published a book that had inconsistencies to following books, people would just tear it apart. And that would be that there is no re-release. And it made me very angry. Something else I just want to briefly mention is that the gunslinger is also on its second life. Um, And by that, I mean, when it was published in 82, it was published as a limited edition. But when Pet Cemetery came out, when they had the other titles by this author, the gunslinger was on it and no one could find it anywhere because it was limited edition and out of print. So people bombarded both Stephen King's uh, office and his editor and the publishing office to be like, where's this book? And so because of the public, really, it got its second life and it's been in print ever since, which is really interesting. And that's all I got to say on that, Mr. King. This is so interesting, just like hearing you talk about it. And I also find it so I don't know if I just didn't realize this, but um, I didn't really think that Stephen, on a first name basis, Stephen, I didn't think he did real uh, series that much. And I didn't think he did stuff outside of our world, even if obviously like, you know, killer clowns don't exist, it is here. Same with like Carrie and, you know, all of that stuff. So I just find it really interesting hearing you talk about it. And it not necessarily even evoking horror to me. Like it did, but not in the same way his classic stuff that we know Stephen King for. I don't know. So it was just really interesting to hear you talk about it because it kind of is giving me cowboy vibes, but I also kept thinking of Dune and the way you were talking about it was reminding me a little bit of how people talk about Dune. And it was also giving like fantasy vibes. And I guess he wrote a different fantasy series too. Something about dragons. So Stephen King's 1984 novel, The Eyes of the Dragon, which was an epic fantasy book with virtually no horror. So that's not a series, but like, I don't know. It's just like interesting because he has range (laughs) it's just a question of is it always well received when he goes outside of his box I guess well that would be another interesting episode to do one time maybe authors out of their element because I, I actually have the eyes of dragon book I haven't read it yet but I do have it um Yes, it is kind of westerny, I would say, the gunslinger. Mm-hmm. And the interesting thing about the Dark Tower series and why I think so many people love it so much, especially uh, the hardcore Stephen King fans, is because I haven't got nearly as close to this yet as I've only read the first book. But this series has many different worlds and universes in it from what I understand and a lot of his characters from his books are in it and they are tied together somehow and it's pretty much what I think of as every writer's dream to 
write a whole bunch of books and then write a book that ties all of your books together. And that's pretty much what he did. Um, which you read the gunslinger and again, you're like, okay. But knowing that there's so much more coming and there's so much that's going to be tied in and into his other books. I think that's what makes so many people love it. The gunslinger is not our world, but there are things of our world in the gunslinger and Mm -hmm. there will be later things Um, from our world in the rest of the dark tower so super super interesting yeah I think I really like that actually and for some reason I think I really like that he started it when he was in college tying back to what you said as we we as writers always want to write something that ties all of our stuff kind of together I don't know I just think that's really cool to think how far back this story in particular goes my other favorite thing about this is that um, just FYI. So this, I my copy of Misery is from 1988. And in the back of it, our readers cannot see it, but it has a little ad for the gunslinger. And the coolest oh, thing is, love I it. wish they still did this. And I vaguely remember when they used to still do this, but it says, it has a little description of the gunslinger and then it has the gunslinger audio will be available in July, 1988. Buy it then at your local bookstore or, or use this convenient coupon to purchase now for shipment mid June, 1988. And it has literally a little tiny coupon to the new American library that you have to mail in to get your audio of the gunslinger. I love that so much. That's why I love old books so much. And I think if you can just stick it out and go thrifting for books that are old instead of buying a new copy on Amazon, um, you should do it. Also, books be expensive. A new book is expensive. Yeah, get your cheap copies. Don't give your money to secondhand books. Exciting. Yes. Full of fun. No, don't give money to Jeff. No, Jeff. Uh, if you're gonna buy, if you're gonna buy a new book, go to an independent bookstore near you and do it. Do it. None of do this it, Barnes and Noble crap. None of this Amazon. No, go to your local bookstore. You know what? If you can't find one, uh, order one offline. Yeah. Uh, the my local bookstore. It's called Talking Leaves. They have a, a website. Uh, there's also Twenty Stories. They're a pretty good one. There's there there are tons of independent bookstores you can buy from if you're gonna buy a new book. Anyways, um, <laughs> anyway, so we like to move on. Yeah, would we like to go to Liza's book? Can I talk a little bit about misery? Why not? Why not? Yeah, so I read Misery, which I had never read before. Um, and I've also never seen the film starring Miss Kathy Bates, who is the only woman I know. She is my favorite person, maybe ever, to grace this planet. So it's kind of crazy that I've never seen Misery. Um, she's queen of horror, by the way. I literally just love her, everything she does. So yeah, the only connection I had to this book, funnily enough, is the TV show Castle Rock. 
um, which if you know, if I've, I feel like anytime I've talked about it, people know that I have a lot of feelings. I love Castle Rock. It got canceled. And every day, I probably think about this once a week and I just begin to weep. Um, but it's basically, if you don't know, it's a TV series that mashes together a bunch of Stephen King's books. And it's really freaking cool. And the second season, the main character is Annie, who's the main character in this book. And it's played by none other than the woman who plays Janice Ian in Mean Girls. So that's just to set you up that that's like sort of a connection I had to Misery. And that's why I was kind of excited to read this book. It was published in 1987. And just to give you a quick, quick summary, although I'm sure most people kind of know the background of this book, but what happens is a novelist named Paul gets injured in a car accident and he gets brought home by a woman named Annie Wilkes, who is a nurse um, who turns out to be his number one fan. And it sort of turns into this bizarre, psychological, claustrophobic, tense horror in which she is forcing him to write a new book in his series that's called Misery. Um, and the misery books are like kind of Victorian, like take place in England. They're not his writings. He got famous off of them, this guy, Paul, but it's not what he specifically likes to write. And so it turns to this whole thing, him getting hooked on her pain medication, Norville, that she supplies him with. Um, and then I won't spoil it, but it gets pretty crazy. So kind of just start it off with readability and interest. I gave this book a seven. I believe that it was hard to put down. Was it the kind of story that's like playing on my mind when I'm not reading it? No, I wasn't like thinking about it when I wasn't reading it. All that being said, it was very bingeable and I almost wish I had read it. So I read it over the course of one week um, and I almost wish I had read it quicker. Because I think uh, there was like part a part in the middle where I kind of like was like, uh, I started like zoning out. Um, and I think I was so hooked on it the first day I started reading it that I almost wish I had done what I would have done when I was a teen and just kept reading it. And that I'm going to kind of tie it into the form and stylization, which I gave a 7.5. And we kind of talked about this, that Stephen King's writing is not anything crazy. He's never doing anything or at least in this book, he wasn't doing anything absolutely insane with form, but the way the chapters are, it's so like chocolate. It's meant to keep you going to the next and the next and the next. Um, they're quite short. They're back to back. And so that's why I kind of think this book was bingeable. And I kind of want to go back to talking about, I kind of just referred to his language as simple. Um, and I think that is what makes his book so bingeable. Like I said before, that like anybody could read it. But I will say I was very struck by these random moments where he would say something like incredibly profound. And I would be like, Stephen, where did you pull that little piece of language from? Um, and I was really entertained by that. And he had this one section right at the beginning where he's like comparing Annie to the moon and like she's like the full moon and there's like a tide um and so this is all to say he has these little bits of language that are really profound he also Marissa you'll appreciate this has this one line somewhere in the book where he 
says that being a student of writing and being a teacher of writing ruined him and ruined the way he like the the Paul says this who I'll get into this later but is a writer so somewhat linked to Stephen King himself but like we said that in our first episode that like being students of writing and teachers of writing or whatever like ruined the way we think about books and 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 so I thought that was really funny that um he said that so yeah he'll have these bits of really profound language and the other reason I gave it a 7.5, you know, quite high up was that he's doing some interesting things here. He has snippets of the actual book, Misery book in here. And the font is in a typewriter font. Um, and at one point, this doesn't spoil anything, but he starts losing letters to the old typewriter that Annie gives him. And so in the book, you'll see it's typewriter font, but then the like N's will be handwritten and then the T's are missing. Um, and that's really cool. Another thing he does with form that I found really interesting is when you get into Paul's head, it's in italics and that happens quite often. Um, there, there's a, I, I cannot spoil this because I'll get into that when I talk about plot, but there's a point that comes where uh, the climax of the story and he's sort of looking at newspaper clipping and they're described really well, but I kind of wish he, because he already said, I'm going to have full sections that are in typewriter font. I wish he had actually put pictures of the newspaper clippings in. I don't know why, but I think if he went as far as to do little handwritten letters for some stuff um, that he could have easily done that. But, but that's just, that, this is all I was to say. He has tactile things in here that I think are really cool because any writer would just maybe like, if they were going to insert a section of their book within a book, they would just do it and they'd write it uh, out. But the fact that he was like, no, I mean, this could be an editor's choice too, but the fact that he was like, no, let's do something interesting with form. I really appreciate it, especially because it's a book about a writer. Shelfworthiness. I gave this book a 7.5. If you are a horror fan, then yes, 100%. I don't know why you wouldn't want to have this on your shelf. If you're a book collector and you like just want some Stephen King books, this is definitely something I just cannot understand why you wouldn't have it. Um, and it is the kind of thing I'm going to hang on to. Will I read it again? I have no clue. But I would like to keep it on my shelf just in case. And I feel like that always tells you if a book is good or not, because sometimes I'll read a book and I'll literally be like, to the stoop you go. I'm not doing it again. Um, but this is definitely shelf worthy. Now to get into plot. So I gave this book an eight for plot. I really enjoyed it. I thought it was not a totally predictable finish at all. I don't know, because I guess, like I said, I kind of knew Annie before reading this book. But I still like didn't really see coming what was coming. Um, th this is not a spoiler, but you can tell by the way that she keeps Paul hostage and the, um, the drugs that she supplies him with that she's sort of like an angel of death, which I think is a really interesting kind of character in true crime and in horror. And it's, I don't know, the plot is cool too, because it's a type of horror that it's not slasher per se. There's not anything supernatural happening, but it's scary. And I wasn't like, you know, it's not a type of horror either where you're like checking behind you while you're reading it and you're like really unsettled after the fact, but it's like a little bit sickening while you're reading it. 
And I think it's largely due to one, I think he's really good at building tension um, historically and in this. And two, the claustrophobic thing that Marissa brought up, this book is incredibly claustrophobic and it largely takes place in one house and in one room. And, and he's kind of lost his mobility um, at a certain point. And it's just really freaky. And it's the kind of horror that just kind of makes you a little bit sick. Like you're not scared, um, you're not paranoid at all, but you're a little bit, you know, unsettled, nauseous. And there's and the twist, the climax of the story, I was like, <gasps> like I, I was like, bam, and I just kept reading. And I feel like that's always a good sign of a good book. And the other thing that just popped into my head that it also kind of freaks me out is there's a point where you find out that he, and this isn't, you, you know, now you guys know that he's being held hostage by Annie. Um, there's a point where he finds out that he is um, considered missing. Like people know he's missing. And that concept is so scary. I can't even imagine to find out that people know you're a missing person and you know exactly where you are, kind of. Like he doesn't actually know where he is, but he knows where he is and he knows the full name of the person holding him hostage. That is so scary and in a psychological terror kind of way. So I really liked the plot of this book. And that brings me to the last sort of snippet of our skill, which is I guess the thing I was thinking about the most gearing up for this episode. And I actually kind of edited myself. I said one thing originally about characterization and then I changed it because I realized that just because you don't like somebody doesn't mean it's not a good character. So here's basically what happened. For characterization, I do not like Paul, the man being held hostage. I do not like him one bit. <laughs> Basic human empathy keeps you from thinking he deserves anything that happens to him in this book that he deserves it because he doesn't deserve any of it and it's all very gruesome and Annie is evil and you do feel bad for him but I did not care for him at all and I don't know if you were supposed to or not and that is kind of what I want to get into too is this is not to say that I liked Annie but I hated the way Paul and Stephen described her I hated the way that they described her appearance. They described her as simple in a way that felt kind of derogatory. And I did not love that. And I think that kind of ties into what Marissa was saying about like sometimes this misogyny we see in King books. And uh, Annie is a bad person. So, you know, say whatever you want about her because she's, I guess, you know, she's evil or what have you she's deranged um but I was kind of having a difficult time trying to figure out yeah is it Paul Sheldon saying this stuff about Annie or should I be a little bit concerned about the way that Stephen King is talking about a um plus-sized woman from a not as educated background I guess like I don't know everything the way he was talking about her felt a little bit derogatory to me and it just sort of skewed me out in a way that wasn't, um, it wasn't making me hate Annie anymore, which maybe it was supposed to do. Like maybe it was supposed to make me be like, ew, it wasn't doing that. It was making me dislike Paul. And so I don't know if it was supposed to make you dislike Paul Sheldon or if it was supposed to make you dislike Annie. And that's why I gave this book um, like a six 
for um, characterization. I thought they were really well-rounded, I guess, characters. They were really interesting. Paul, you know, you really got to understand how he was working, especially with his problem with his addiction to the Norville and his sort of will to survive. Um, But he's also, you know, this very pretentious writer. That was carried throughout. And you got to understand Annie really well too. And the thing that I think probably people will remember the most about Annie, if you've read the book, but if you've seen Misery or if you've seen Castle Rock is her um, speech pattern. And I always really, really appreciate when a writer gives a character a specific speech pattern and specific catchphrases. And Annie has some really funny, crazy ones. Um, So like the characterization was good. It was just a matter of, I couldn't tell what Stephen want, what Stephen King wanted me to do with that information, kind of, if that makes any sense. And now I kind of actually want to pull up this quote that Marissa sent me, um, because this might explain the characters just a little bit more and kind of give me and you a little bit more of a feel for how we were supposed to deal with this and reckon with this. To give context, um, this was written when Stephen King was still struggling with addiction. And he says, when you're an addict, you have to use. So you just try to balance things out as best you can. I was usually pretty good about it. I was able to get up and make the kids breakfast and get them off to school. And I was strong. I had a lot of energy. I would have killed myself otherwise. But the books start to show it after a while. Misery is a book about cocaine. Annie Wilkes is cocaine. She was my number one fan. And I didn't realize that. And I was looking at the um, sort of addiction imagery in this and these weird dream sequences that um, King often writes Paul going into as being, I thought it must be connected to Stephen King's past with addiction, um, especially because Paul Sheldon is a writer, but I thought it was the actual drugs I had not realized that Annie was the metaphor for cocaine. And so looking back on it, seeing that quote after I finished the whole book and thinking about how like Annie was literally just beating the living crap, honestly, out of Paul Sheldon physically and mentally, it makes so much more sense still brings some questions as to why he described Annie in the way that he did but her actions the way that she will go from being so sweet and you know helping him out and being his number one fan to just fits of rage and acts of violence that makes so much more sense when you're looking at her actually as a um, metaphor for coke characterization was the only place where I was like, I feel like I have to think about this a lot harder than I normally would. But yeah, those are my thoughts on misery. I had a great time reading it. And that's the most important thing is if you're having fun reading a book. It's not about the reading. It's about the fun you had along the way. Exactly. (laughs) I think that's that on Mr. King. Now would be a great time to announce next week. If you don't know, uh, when um, September 15th to October 15th is National Hispanic American Heritage Month. And we wanted to make sure we took a moment to observe that because there are so many incredible Latinx and Hispanic authors, both dating way back and contemporary 
Um, and so we wanted to take a moment to highlight those authors. So next week, um, we're each going to be reading a book by a Latinx or Hispanic author. Marissa, do you want to announce what you are reading? I am reading Earth Eater by Dolores Reyes. And I am reading um, The Inheritance of Orquita Divina by Zoreta Cordova. And I am also very excited. And I'm excited, actually, very much to hear about Marissa's book as well. And these are both new books. Um, so you'll be hearing this a week before the podcast. So go and give your money to a Latinx woman author, buy the books, and maybe you can even read them before the episode. Actually, also, just go this month, make it a mission to buy a book that honors Hispanic Heritage Month. Yeah, we're giving you all homework. That's your homework. Go do it. You have to do it. (laughs) If you don't, I'm going to send a scary man to your room to bite (laughs) off your toes. So let's do it. So do it. I think that's all from us this week. But if you would like to keep up with us on social media, you can follow us on Instagram, Twitter, and TikTok at LSMR Podcast and on Facebook at Little Sleep Much Reading Podcast. And that's all she wrote. Thanks for coming to our TED Talk. Thanks, guys. Bye. Bye. Kathy Bates. Kathy Bates!